At the lake, I ran into a guy who hadn't caught any fish, and he saw my catch. I told him I was jigging. He said so was he and didn't, didn't understand how he caught him. Well, there's lots of nuances to jigging, and we're going to talk about that on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance, and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey guys, Chad Lachance here. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. Of course, brought to you by the fine folks at Sportsman's Warehouse. More than 140 stores nationwide, or visit them at sportsmans.com for all your hunting, fishing, camping, outdoor cooking, and outdoor clothing needs. Guys, it's a beautiful fall day here in Colorado, and I just got back from one of my favorite places to fish. Um, was up in a, an area of North Park, Colorado, and it's an area that I fish pretty much every year. Uh, if at all possible, I'll go up and, and go there sometime in October and target some brown trout and some rainbow trout and a few other things. Uh, usually at that time of year, we're targeting brown trouts with, with some sort of a hard bait, a jerk bait, something like that. And then we're targeting the rainbows with some sort of a jig because they're under the browns and tight to the bottom. And normally that's how it goes. And the lake we went to, uh, yesterday, uh, drove up and made, made the pilgrimage up there. Uh, I had heard it had winter killed in a big way that the ice had capped early, two weeks early, and remained on the lake two weeks late last spring. And in addition, had a lot of snow piled up on top of it all winter. And it's a big, shallow bowl of a lake with a tremendous amount of weed growth, which makes for some really excellent fish you know, characteristics in terms of how they grow and what they do but also makes those lakes susceptible to uh, a significant die-off if the sun does not penetrate the ice and therefore feed the weed growth. So all those massive weed beds that make so much nutrients in the system uh, for fish and let them grow now become a detriment as they die and rot under the ice and deprive the water of oxygen and subsequently kill the fish. So... I had heard there was a big winter die-off, and I decided I wanted to go up there and check it out. Um, and I wasn't up there last year, which is rare. I don't normally miss a season going up there, but I did not make it up there last year because I had a, uh, some extra hunting to do and didn't get to, didn't, didn't make it up there to fish. Uh, but I wanted to go see what happened after the die-off, and I've fished there for 15 or 20 years uh, every fall. So I have a pretty good idea of what, what the lake normally fishes like, both on a good day and a bad day and an average day. So... I figured we were going to be potentially in uh, for a slow bite, and I also figured, based on my conversations with the biologist that manages the lake, uh, that they had stocked a bunch of rainbows, and I knew we were going to have an emphasis on jigs, and so I went up there to really focus on jigging for those rainbows as they try to rebuild the fishery uh, after the winter die-off, and he said that the brown numbers weren't, uh, weren't stocked yet or weren't back to where they needed to be in any level yet, and so recommended I not target them too much, so I really wanted to focus on the jig itself, and that's what I did, and bottom line, to, to cut to the chase here, I had a half dozen jigs rigged on the deck of the boat, so to say you're jigging can mean a lot of different things. On top of that, um, it was a rough day for everybody fishing-wise. When I say everybody, I talked to quite a few anglers. The one thing about being a high-profile uh, guy in a high-profile boat in a high-profile truck in the middle of nowhere in a remote parking lot, 
there's not a lot of guys there that aren't going to spot you and recognize what's going on when you've been doing it as long as I have in this area, no less. So a bunch of people came to talk to us, and I went and talked to a lot of people. Long story short, nobody caught a single fish, and I managed to catch three of them. And when I say managed, normally I would expect to catch 20 of them on the same amount of time in a normal year, 15 to, say, 25 of these trout at this time of year in the conditions we were in at that lake. And like I said, I caught three total. I caught everything that bit and had to work my tail off to catch those fish, and I caught them all on jigs. Well, the guy, one guy that I talked to in the parking lot that was was major, he says, geez, man, I, I jigged all day too, and I didn't catch any fish. And it made me think about this podcast and why I want to do this podcast, because really when somebody says, well, I jigged all day, well, that could mean any number of things. And so I want to go through some nuances of jigging that make a big difference and, uh, and how I mixed it up and why I had a half dozen jigs on the deck of the boat. And I want to point out that two different ways of jigging got me bites yesterday, and that's important as well. Uh, and we're going to talk about those. So first and foremost, what you're using as a jig is is a key part. Now, a jig is defined basically a hook with lead molded on the end of it, um, and then you put a soft plastic body on it of some kind, or a feather body, or whatever. That's what a jig is. It could have hair, uh, it could have a gulp on it or maximum power bait or whatever, but it, it's just a hook with lead already molded onto it, and it's got some sort of a body. So variables include the size, uh, weight, and shape of the jig, the amount of lead itself, uh, the size, shape, color, uh, and nuances basically of the body that's on there. Um, and then from there, I can change up that what that jig does tremendously just by what line I fish it on, or even more importantly, how I work the jig itself. And that's really the meat of where we wanted to go with this. And that was a long-winded introduction, but jigging seems overly simple uh, to a lot of people. There's one way to do it. That's how we do it, and it goes down the you know go down that path. And I know that from 20 years of guiding people. When I hand somebody a a rod with a jig on it and tell them to go to town without giving them any instruction. Everybody's got their own way of doing it. And from my experience, very few of them mix it up very much. And that's really not necessarily the best way to take advantage of the, the versatility of a jig. And I'm of the opinion, and I've done other podcasts to this effect, that a finesse jig uh, is the most important thing a freshwater angler can learn how to do. And the reason I say that is a jig can be fished in any depth, can be fished vertical or horizontal, can be fished for any species you can think of. And I do mean any species you can think of. There's not one species that comes to mind that I can't target effectively with a jig of some sort. And when I specify specifically a finesse jig, for me, that's somewhere between a sixteenth of an ounce and a quarter of an ounce. And the body size is somewhere between, say, an inch and maybe four and a half inches. And that's still a huge range of potential combinations of, of different things you could be jigging. And then when you add the variables of line, so let's talk about what uh, effect the body shape has on the jig, and then we'll add the variables of line, and then we'll get into the rod movements from there. First of all, if I have a something like a tube jig, it will typically behave different depending on how I put the jig head in the tube itself. And if you want more information on that, go 
Look at my podcast, Totally Tubular Tactics. It's a whole podcast on a tube jig. Tube jig is a very versatile, uh, very, very versatile um, jigging tool of some sort. And I think it's one of the most important. But another possibility could be the straight minnow body, which I think is probably the single most versatile of all. It is in my mind anyway. Uh, typified by a three-inch gold minnow for me, but it could be any slew of, of straight-bodied, uh, minnow-bodied type jigs. Basically, they look and are shaped exactly like a minnow of some sort, and it might have some little bit of a fork to the tail, but no real action built into it at all. It's just a very subtle uh, presentation. And then from there, you could add a T-tail or a boot tail to it, uh, or a swim bait tail, and then you've got a soft swim bait. And all of those behave one way, and that is that swim that tail will swim as the bait is retrieved or as it sinks. It will put off resistance in the water, and uh, it will also put off vibration in the water in so doing. And that resistance keeps the jig from falling as quickly as, say, a straight-tailed minnow body, in the same way that a parachute keeps you from falling as fast on, on the way to the earth. It has resistance through the air. So the boot tail or the soft swim bait, um, that's another possibility. Another good possibility could be some sort of hair or marabou. Um, oh, and there's an infinite number of combinations of those, everything from store-bought to hand-tied, uh, just literally anything you can come up with in that scenario. Bucktail jigs, marabou jigs, um, all sorts of hybrid jigs these days. Lots of fly tires are tying little tiny jigs. Uh, but but basically, there's that possibility as well. And then you have the old curl tail grub, something like a quote-unquote Mr. Twister, um, you know, a little Berkeley Power Grub, something like that, another possibility. So you've got a lot of choices of what you jig. And so for me, when I say I have a half dozen jigs on the deck of the boat, the combinations typically are something like I'll have a swim bait body or a boot tail, I'll have a straight minnow body of some sort. I'll probably have a tube jig of some sort. And I might have a marabou jig of some sort. And somebody's going to say, okay, well, that's only four. And you said you had a half dozen. Well, that's because I will typically do something like a two and a half inch straight minnow body with a 16th ounce head and a four inch minnow body with a 3 16 ounce head or something to that effect. So it's just a little bit bigger profile, same basic action, just a little bit bigger, a little bit easier to control in the wind, something like that. And that's the scenario I had going up there yesterday. And then the other one was I had a hybrid jig and a hybrid jig is the only one I haven't mentioned yet, but a hybrid jig has got the, the jig head molded permanently into the plastic. And you guys have seen those. They've been in, around in various incarnations for a long time. In my opinion, by a large margin, the best version thereof that I've ever dealt with is definitely the power switch. And the power switch basically looked at every possible nuance of the various finesse jigs and tried to make a bait that was capable of doing any of them to some degree. And that's a key thing right there because I can use that power switch to not quite duplicate, but to some degree mimic any other jig style if I need to do so. And so I had that bait on yesterday as well. And incidentally, two of the three fish I caught bit that power switch, a three inch power switch. Uh, the other one bit a tube jig, so a Berkeley power tube, which was also three inches, by the way, which in my opinion is a sweet spot for a lot of species of fish. Right around three inches is kind of a sweet spot. Much smaller than that, 
you'll run out of bites much bigger than that. You'll run out of bites in terms of consistency, but a, somewhere in the two and a half to three and a half inch range is kind of a sweet spot for me. So that's what I did. Now, in all cases yesterday, I had them on braided line with a fluorocarbon leaner. The water was crystal clear and there's a lot of weed growth. And when you have that weed growth, it automatically tells me braided line. If I had, say, a rock bottom, I would consider monofilament or fluorocarbon. Um, but if I've got a weed bottom, a weed vegetation, I need to have that no stretch braid so that I can snap the jig out of the weeds. Uh, excuse me, I can snap the jig out of the weeds if I need to. So when it starts to hang in the elodia grass, I can snap it hard with the rod and pop it out of that grass really good. The other thing it gives me is tensile strength for if I hook a trout and he dives down into those weeds, uh, then it gives me a little bit of tensile strength and weed cutting ability like weed eater string to get through the, those weed growth and get my fish back. And then the last thing the jig, the uh, braid gives me on, particularly in something like an eighth ounce jig, it gives me casting range. So I can throw it a long ways. Braided line for a given pound test will throw a lot farther than, than nylon or, or fluorocarbon. So it gives me a lot of advantages, which is why I had it in that scenario. Um, the other thing is it's controllable in the wind uh, and it gives you the casting distance and everything in the wind is good. And then lastly, it gives me hook setting ability and, and bite detection ability from way out there. And one of my casts yesterday uh, was probably the better part of 50 yards. And the camera guy even made a joke. Uh, he says, even, even if you hook one out there, it's going to be a long fight. Well, about three seconds later, I got bit. And, uh, and he got the whole thing on film. And yes, it was a very long fight. But you can't even make a 50-yard throw with 8-pound test nylon monofilament, let's say, in an 8-ounce jig. And you dang sure wouldn't have any hook setting ability with 10% stretch, which is what's common in nylon. Uh, so it was a much better deal to have that light braid with the fluorocarbon leader and make the long throw with it. And that's what I did. So if you're going to fish a jig on braid, you just have to keep in mind that braided line has, it emphasizes everything you do, uh, or I shouldn't say it emphasizes, it, it, it does everything you do. Whereas nylon or fluorocarbon will mute everything you do. So if I snap the rod an inch at one end with braided line, I get an inch of movement at the other end. If I snap the rod with an inch of movement on, on the rod uh, with nylon monofilament, I might get no movement at all out of my jig on the other end. Uh, I might get a delayed movement as the nylon absorbs the, the movement of the rod and therefore then uh, it takes it a second to recover and it will pull the jig forward. And so you will mute your action or dumb your action down a whole bunch with nylon uh, or fluorocarbon. And that's not necessarily bad. Don't take that as a statement that it's necessarily bad. And in fact, in cold water, a lot of the time in really cold water, I'd rather have the action muted down because everything in cold water is, is slow. Fish are cold blooded. They move slower in cold water than they do in, in um, hot water. And so everything in the ecosystem is just a little bit dumbed down in cold water in terms of motion. So nylon is an excellent call, or fluorocarbon, excellent call in those scenarios, just not so good for fishing around the weeds because, of, like I said, getting the weeds off of them. 
Having said that, nylon monofilament is much better for popping a jig out of rock snags using elastic, using its elasticity you know, properties to put some stretch in it and let it go all in one shot, and it will basically spring your jig out of the rocks a lot of the time. So if I'm fishing rock stuff, I let's say a dam face or something, I'd rather have nylon or fluorocarbon in most cases uh, because again, from the snagability and uh, and like I said, in cold water, it can it can dumb you down. But not a good scenario around the weeds. Not a good scenario around heavy wind uh, or any place you've got to make really long throws. So what you have to be careful with with the braid though is overworking your jig, which is very easy to do. So let's say you and I are in a boat together, and you've got nylon, and I've got. Uh, I've got braided line, okay? And you're snapping your rod tip up two feet real aggressively and then letting the jig swim down. Well, your bait might actually only move 12 or 18 inches when you snap it up because the memory and the stretch in the nylon will absorb a whole bunch of it. Then on top of it, your jig will be slower to respond when the, uh, when the line does come tight, again, because of the stretchy properties of the line. Conversely, if I make that same exact rod motion with the exact same rod with a braided line, I'm going to get a full you know, couple feet of hop. The bait's going to do it immediately. It's going to be a much crisper, quicker presentation, which might be good or bad on any given day. You got to, the fish will got to tell you that. And so you have to be cognizant of that for certain uh, of what, you know, what your line is and what you're doing. And let's say yesterday, as I'm moving back and forth between presentations, I have to be cognizant of what line is on there and how heavy is that jig head if I want to duplicate motion. And you just have to keep all of those variables kind of in your brain when you're setting up and rigging uh, for any given thing. So that's a key, key part of it. And if I am fishing against somebody else and I'm watching what they're doing, I say against, I really should say I'm fishing with somebody in the boat, but look, I'm a competitor. If we're in the boat together, I want to catch more fish than you. Let me just be candid about that. Uh, it is what it is. I don't want to beat up on somebody who doesn't have my level of fishing experience, but if you and I are, are comparable fishermen, then yeah, I want to beat you every time. And if I see something you're doing is working better, one of the things I have to consider is what is his tackle? And, or what is your tackle? Is your tackle more or less responsive than the tackle I'm fishing? If you're snapping at 18 inches and catching them every time, but you have nylon monofilament, I might need to snap mine slower and only more like 12 inches to get the same effect, assuming we have the same jig and the same rod. So keep those things in mind. Another thing to keep in mind, variables between various jigs, and this is why I advocate get one brand of jig head that you like and stick with it, whatever that brand is. Because in my experience, manufacturers do not have the same weight. All eighth ounce jig heads do not weigh an eighth of an ounce. I can promise you that because I bought a whole bunch of them of different brands, <clears throat> brought them home, put them on a $400 digital scale that goes out to the thousandths of a of a decimal place and weighed them. And I can tell you that I got them a wide range of actual weights. So find a brand you like and stick with it. And then you know, okay, every time I put an eighth ounce one on, it's the same. But if you have four different eighth ounce jig head brands in your boat, you may not be able to duplicate your exact thing each time. And the more you can duplicate, the more fish you can catch. So keep that in mind as well. And so if I look at a guy's jig head and he's catching more fish than me, he says, well, it's an eighth ounce, but it may or may not be. And I have to look at that close and see what my decisions are there. But my point of all this being is all of those details will make a big difference. Now, 
the shape of the jig, or the, excuse me, the shape of the body on the jig and the weight of the jig head itself will make the single biggest difference of how that jig behaves. The next biggest difference, though, will be what you do with the rod. And then the last difference will be what type of line you have on there. But I mentioned them in that order in the first place because I'm a big believer that you choose your bait first, then your line, then your rod, then your reel, because my rods that I use for nylon might be faster action than the rods I use for braided line for the reasons I've already mentioned. So uh, in other words, the rod's a little crisper for monofilament in some cases, and that's why I always pick it. But what the guy holding the jig rod is doing with that rod will make the biggest difference in how that jig behaves. And so when a guy says, well, I was jigging too, and I didn't catch any fish, that doesn't even remotely narrow it down. He could have been jigging vertically, horizontally. He could have been doing a stop and go uh, you know, retrieve. He could have been working it tip up or tip down or tip sideways. He could have been on the reel a whole bunch and therefore uh, having tension on the line, or he could have been throwing a whole bunch of slack at it every time. And all of those things make a giant difference. And I can't sit here in a podcast and say, well, this is how you need to do it. That's the beauty of the jig is it's up to the angler. And it's why I feel like the jig is most versatile because it's 100% up to the angler as to what that jig does, particularly when you're talking about a straight tail minnow body or a something, the hybrid jig like the power switch. And because neither of those have any built-in action on their own. If I want that thing to dart, I can make it dart. If I want it to swim, I can swim it. If I want it to spiral down, I can make it spiral. I can do a lot of stuff with it, whereas every other jig style will have some built-in action of its own. So... Uh, if I want a swim bait to swim faster, I got to put a heavier jig head in it. Uh, if I want the, or if I want to sink faster, let's say I got to put a heavier jig head in it. It will hit its terminal velocity, so to speak, quickly. But a straight tail minnow body, it might be just throw a little bit more slack at it, and it will go down faster. It's just that, that pulling the tension of the line down is what's slowing it, uh, slowing it down, rather than the resistance of the jig itself in the water column. So you have to keep all of those in shape, in, in mind, I should say, whenever you're making your decisions. And I'm throwing out a tremendous number of variables at you on purpose, and that's because. I want you to think about all of those different variables every time you pick a jig up and every time you're not getting bit. So literally over the course of even an individual retrieve yesterday, at the beginning of my retrieve, let's say I make a, a big long throw. Let's say we're throwing the the, the power switch because it's, again, the, the power switch or the, or the minnow-shaped body are the most versatile. So let's say I make a long throw with the power switch. Maybe at the beginning of my retrieve, I'm working it with the rod tip down and popping it a little bit more horizontal because the line's all flattened out between me and the jig. The angle of the line between me and the jig is very flat. So maybe I work it more horizontally where if you saw me working the jig, you might think I was working something like a jerkbait. But as it gets closer to the boat, then I might start bringing my line, my rod tip up a little bit more, and that will to keep the jig going a little bit more horizontally. And so those nuances like that uh, can make a total difference. Maybe I'll jig it three or four times vertical, and so the jig's hopping up and down, and then I'll snap it once horizontal, which will make the jig a lot of times snap sideways rather than up or down. Again, it's a change in what the jig did, and that will oftentimes get you uh, 
a whole bunch of bytes. Another thing I might do uh, would be something like, let's say I'm doing a, a lift. Maybe my lift is a nice, even, smooth lift, and then I just stop the rod right there and let the jig swim down. Or maybe I snap the rod up real hard and then immediately throw a slack back at it, in which case the jig will jump straight up aggressively and then drop straight back down to the bottom. Uh, that's a possibility. Maybe I do a stop-and-go retrieve where I point the rod straight at it and I wind it three times and then stop. The, the jig will sort of rise and swim to you, and then when you just stop without ever moving the rod at all or doing any more reeling, the line will stay tight and the jig will swim its way back to the bottom at an angle or pendulum its way back to the bottom at an angle. Again, it's up to me as an angler, and I can do any of these retrieves with any of those jig combos on any of the line I've mentioned uh, for this whole podcast. Another common one for me might be to do a double or a triple lift where I pick the bait up a little bit, then up, up, two more pops, and try to get fish to chase it up. And at which point when you slack it out at the top, it'll roll over, and that's a lot of times where they'll bite it. Sometimes I'm lifting or dropping the jig two or three inches off the bottom. Typically that's going to be a clean bottom thing where I'm popping it just barely off the bottom or a lake trout thing where I'm just barely moving the jig off the bottom. At other times, maybe I'm working aggressive summertime walleyes and I'm popping the bait three feet off the bottom. Same jig, just pop it much harder and get it to jump straight up off the bottom in good ways or up in the water column, whatever it might be, and then let it go back to the bottom. Uh, but again, it's how I'm holding the rod and working that rod that will make more of a difference with the jig than anything else, especially again with the straight minnow body or the uh, power switch. And by the way, that power switch for me has turned into, I've, I've said for many years, let me back up a quarter step here. I've said for many years, and I stick by it, that the most of, uh, the most versatile and effective jig of all time for me, at without any question, is a three-inch gold minnow on an eight-ounce jig head. The closest I've come to that has been a power minnow, which is, again, pretty good. doesn't have quite as much scent uh, to it as a gulp does, uh, but it's sometimes a little easier to work with because it won't dry out. And then the one next from that has definitely been the power switch. And I've been fishing the power switch for a year and a half. You guys are just now being able to get them in stores, but I was on the test team for them, and it has been a very, very effective multi-species bait. And so what I'm getting at with those three jigs is they're all that straight-tailed body. And it's the most common one that I throw. I throw boot tails some of the time. I throw tube jigs some of the time. I throw curl tail gribs some of the time. I throw a straight body jig pretty much every day that I jig, at least to some degree, because again, it will get me the, the most versatility, and that's always what I'm looking for. So next time you're at the lake and a guy says, I was jigging too, or next time a guy jigs and he outfishes you like crazy, look at a bunch of the nuances of how he's doing it and understand that there's no right or wrong way to jig. Um, there's the single biggest thing about the jig than it, by anything else is line watching and bite detection. That doesn't change regardless of how my jig is fished or anything else. So I've got to generate the bite and to generate that bite, it comes down to the combination of the weight and shape of the jig, the line it's on, and most importantly, the rod itself and how I'm working it, and, uh, and that'll make a, a huge difference in your angling. I strongly suggest that you mix it up until you find the one retrieve that's getting bit the most, and then you stick with that one. There's going to be days like I had yesterday where I didn't catch enough fish overall because they simply aren't there after the winter kill. 
I didn't catch enough fish overall to really hone in on the one retrieve or the one jig they wanted. The fish bit the straight um, power switch, one bit it on a stop and go retrieve, and then one bit it on a lift and drop, more vertical jigging type presentation. The tube jig fish bit it on a spiral drop. So again, there were three fish that bit on different retrieves and two different jigs. So I didn't really have a tight pattern together, but I've seen a lot of scenarios where I can find the, the weight of the jig, the body, the line, and the rod, and more importantly, the retrieve, and I can click off a lot of fish in a row. But it might have taken you know, 15 different combos to get to that point. And I'll go through those 15 different combos in a very short period of time in the event that I know I'm fishing around fish. If I know that there's fish there that are getting a look at my jig, then I will change up my retrieve a lot in a hurry, uh, which is why there's a half dozen jigs on the deck of the boat. And I will go back and forth between them, literally making one or two casts at a time. Uh, again, if I know I'm around fish. And so that's a key thing as well. So I appreciate you guys tuning in, as always, to this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. Hopefully, you'll subscribe wherever you listen. Um, also, check out our social media at Fishful Thinker, and that's on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. I would appreciate that very much. If you guys ever have questions, send them to us. If you have podcast ideas, send them to me. I'm always glad to try to answer them. If I have good intel for you, I'll provide it. If you've got a good idea for a podcast, I would love to hear it because we do one every week. So, Thanks for tuning in. This has been Fishful Thinker, the podcast.